We're so glad that you're listening to the Branches Podcast. If you're in the Houston area, we'd love to see you in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more information, go to brancheshtx.org. We hope this message helps you draw closer to God and that you hear the good news that you belong. Thanks for listening. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark's story about Jesus, in the first chapter, the very beginning, he says this, or in Mark chapter 1, the first 11 verses. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased." Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Let's pray together. Uh, Tonight, well, first, before I get into this, if you guys want to check in, let us know that you're here. Uh, I may want to email you and catch up with what I'm about to tell you. (laughs) Uh, Tonight, at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, uh, you can go on Netflix and watch the live reunion episode of Love is Blind. Um... (laughs) Anybody watching Love is Blind? Any fans out there? It's the trashiest trash that ever trashed. And uh, I can't stop. (laughs) And when a season finishes, I'm immediately on my phone Googling, when is the next one? So for those that don't know about it, just let me lay out the premise for you a little bit. It's awfully good. (laughs) There's two groups, men and women. They live in this kind of living space for a few weeks. And while they're in this living space, divided men and women, they go into these things they call the pods. And in the pods, it's a single room, there's a couch, uh, too much alcohol, uh, maybe like a Sudoku book, a blanket, whatever else. And on the other side of this wall in front of you, there's another pod. So it's like mirrored on the other side. And on the other side is another person. And so for weeks at a time, these people go into these pods, and between the walls, they talk to each other. I think it's mic'd up, so you can hear the the audio piped in from the other room. And you talk and talk and talk. And the premise of the show is to kind of raise the question, this kind of common saying that love is blind. And Nick Lachey, for some reason, and his wife (laughs) want to answer that question on television. And from all accounts I've heard, Nick Lachey was a terrible husband to Jessica Simpson, so I don't know why he feels like he's an authority in this area. Not the point of the sermon. I gotta get to Jesus quick. All right, so they're in these pods and they have these conversations and it's so painful. <laughs> they, they open up their lives. Sometimes they tell these really heartfelt stories. 
God forbid, sometimes they sing to each other really horrible songs, and they get to know each other, and they get really deep, and because they're spending basically all their time either in the living quarters with the other people of their gender, or they're in these pods, they're like really going deep. I mean, hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation. The shocking thing of this show, and I know some of you are going to go home and watch it and be like, I can't believe he told me about this. They... The, the goal of the show is not to be like, hey, this person sounds nice, and I like what they have to say. I'd be willing to kind of start a relationship with them. That's not the end goal. The end goal is for them in the pods to propose marriage, sight unseen. <laughs> and I heard the premise. I was like, none of these jokers are going to get married. A shocking number of them do. <laughs> So they have these conversations and they, they propose to one another and it's so cringy and so awful. And then they, they, they go into this hallway and there's these screens and they're on the other side of the screens and at the end of this experiment, the screens go up and they see each other for the first time. And you can just imagine how that plays out. Sometimes they're stoked. They're like, they look way better than I imagined them. Or other times it's like the dude is going in for the kiss and the girl like, woo, like over and just hugs very gently, you know. And then after that, I'm, I'm going to take up so much time today. Uh, after that, they are then on an all-expenses-paid trip to Mexico, to this resort. And they have to spend like a week in Mexico together. Sometimes that's where it all falls apart. Uh, and they learn more about each other because they're actually in physical proximity. And then after that, they get moved into apartments together for a few weeks. Their wedding is a month after they propose. Uh, so they have to tell their parents and their family. Most of the time, their families are not very thrilled. <laughs> uh, and then they go to the altar. And th let me just say, I haven't done a wedding in Branches yet, but when I do, the time to make the decision isn't when you're standing up here. Uh, and, and that's what they do on the show. They go stand up there, and then the officiant has this very scripted thing. They do the little wedding, and then he says, okay, now you have to decide, is love really blind? And sometimes it's shocking. The people are like, oh, we will, like, before the wedding episode, we'll be like, okay, they're not staying together. They're not staying together. They might stay together. I'm almost always wrong. Uh, just shocking. People say yes. And some of the couples are still married. Some are not. And, and they make this decision just standing in front of their friends and family. A lot of tears, a lot of drama. And then tonight's episode for the fourth season, I, I could have been reading the Bible. Uh, <laughs> They, they get back together and then they bicker, you know, and they're like, it was your fault that it fell apart. No, it was your fault. And they say really horrible things to each other and Nick Lachey is there and he's like sitting between them, like egging them on, you know? So that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. <laughs> Amen. All right. No, uh, <laughs> the show, I, I don't know. I think the attraction is it makes me feel really good about my marriage one. <laughs> uh, it's just, it is kind of the spectacle of, you know, the things that people will do. Um, the, just the experiment that they go through is so, it's compelling in a really bad way. And one of the things that really draws me to it is like, okay, what, what clicks in your head having never seen the person, and I'm not a superficial person, it's not all about looks, but like that you can say through a screen to one another that you're like, okay, I'm gonna propose. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask them to marry me through a wall. And I'm I don't know them that well. We've only known each other for a few weeks and just audibly. What what propels somebody to make that decision they want to be in a relationship? And because I've been ruined by my profession and going to seminary, I think about everything through the lens of like, what does this have to do with church? And the annoying thing is some people, and you know them, Christian people, treat Jesus this way. They're like, hey, there's this guy 
He's a carpenter, so probably pretty jacked. Uh, he's really close relationship with his mom. Uh, his dad's very powerful. <laughs> uh, he has 12 very close friends, so he's not a loner. He's got some friends. Uh, he's very religious, if that's your thing. <laughs> uh, he kind of likes to shake things up a bit, a little bit of a revolutionary. Um, he kind of wanders around. I think he might be homeless, not 100% sure. Uh, he's like, you know, washes his friend's feet, odd, but interesting. Uh, I want you to meet him. <laughs> and he loves you, you know. And I've been in that place before, before I was a Christian, where somebody's telling me about Jesus, and it's this character, it's this person. Talk about a wall in between. It's like 2,000 years of history, a, a cultural chasm really hard to, to get a grasp on how different our culture is now than first century Palestine and in Jesus' own religious culture. And, and then you have somebody tell, tell you, you know, they're trying to get you to agree with them, to, to come to the church, whatever else. There's this guy, and he loves you. And he, he wants a relationship with you and he wants to know you and he wants you to emulate him and to follow after him or whatever. And I don't want to diminish at all discipleship to Jesus. Of course, I want to amplify it. But the weak way sometimes we talk about who Jesus is and how we invite people to experience him and, and, and to follow after him and to be more like him and to love him. And that's what the gospel writers, there's these, these four biographers of Jesus in the New Testament. And if you flip to the New Testament, the first one you get is Matthew. And it has the classic story of the virgin birth and Jesus is born into this world and, and he, he grows up and he's baptized and he's around for a few years in his 30s and he's crucified. And then as we celebrated last week, he raises from the dead and he starts this cultural revolutionary religious movement. And then Mark, which we read from today, is second in your Bible, but all scholars agree is very likely the very first one that was ever written. And as we read today, you see it's just like things get moving very quickly. Jesus, fully adult, he's coming in. Here's John the Baptist, his cousin. He's gonna baptize him. And there he is, there's Jesus, he's baptized, and then he goes. And he goes into wilderness, that's the 40 days that we celebrate in Lent. And then the same story, he teaches some stuff about the kingdom, he gathers disciples around him, he's crucified, and then the end of Mark is a little mysterious. He's likely resurrected, but it's kind of, we're left hanging at the end. And you read Luke, very similar to Matthew. Luke and Matthew probably knew a little bit of Mark, knew some of the kind of oral traditions about who Jesus was, and then and then the same story happens. And Luke's Jesus is a little more like punchy. I like Luke's Jesus. And then John's, you read it and you're like, wow, this one doesn't start with the virgin birth. This one doesn't start with like fully adult Jesus. This one starts with a poem. And it echoes the beginning of the creation story of these Jewish believers that in the beginning, it's not God created the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we find out this word, this logos came to be in flesh in the person of Jesus. These, these four people, and we don't know if it was actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's different debates about that. But we know within just decades of Jesus' life, people thought his story important enough to write it down. It was likely passed around orally in stories. It was likely passed around in circles and communities. It was likely passed around by certain communities, like maybe one community just had Luke, and one just had John, and one just had Mark. But they thought it so important because of what Jesus did, because of what we observed last week, that they wanted to put pen to paper. It was that important. They're, they're introducing people all around them. I've heard about this Jesus. What is he like? And they're like, well, I got this friend named Mark, and he wrote this book about him. Would you read it? 
And so when we say, why Jesus, we're actually stepping into a conversation that's been going on for centuries because Jesus shook up, in a lot of ways, every facet of existence, every facet of culture, every facet of a person's day-to-day life, just interjected into history was this guy. And he did all this amazing, miraculous stuff, and he taught these radical things, and he invited people to follow after him, and then, and then by all accounts, was crucified But then the mysterious thing is the the followers of him said it didn't just stop there, he came back. And he's actually the the life of this new community, this community that we call the church. So that's the the condensed version of why Jesus is because not just outside of his own compelling, you know, religious and ethical teaching, but because of what he did for us. You hear it all the time, Jesus died for you on your behalf, he did all these things. But more than that, I think Mark has the key to to maybe answering that question in a little bit of a deeper way. Just in those first few verses, it says this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and two things about him, the son of God. And then this prophet has written about this messenger, this Messiah that's gonna come. I'm sending you a messenger ahead of you. And John the Baptist talks about he's not even worthy to untie the thongs of this person's sandals and he's baptized by him, and then Jesus begins his ministry. But there's, there's three things there. The, the beginning of the good news, then, then the Son of God, and the Messiah. So let's, let's start with the beginning of the good news. I think we can all, just at base level, if you were just looking for something, if you were longing for something, if you were kind of needy in your life, maybe the first thing you would want to hear is just some good news. And remember at the beginning of the pandemic, Jim from The Office I started that show about good news every day. And it was just like little clips of these stories that would just like lift you up in your despair. Like, okay, that's funny. And then you'd go back to another Zoom meeting. But there was Jim from the office, you know, every week. But it spoke to this deep need, this human need, outside of a religious need, that we need good news. That in the midst of our bad news, in the, in the midst of our diagnoses, or in the midst of our broken relationships, or in the midst of the world where we see so much suffering, Mark is interjecting into the world, there's this, this good news There's this gospel, the Greek word is evangelion. And it wasn't just used by uh, Christian people. It was used in the Greco-Roman world to say there's there's this new edict, there's this new word, there's this new work given in this person's name and this one is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And the the other beautiful thing is, is Mark doesn't say, this is the good news, this is the beginning. He sets the stage that it gives you a taste of it. This is just the start of the good news of Jesus. That's the, the, the first reason I would give. The first reason that it's good to follow Jesus is because it's good news. And even if you have like the perfect life, which I suspect you don't, we all want and need at various times in our life good news. And it interjects in Mark's gospel. Second is this idea of the Messiah, this promised person, this messenger that's given that Mark writes that, that that promise given to the Jewish people centuries ago is embodied in this person, Jesus. He's the messenger. He's the Messiah. He's the marked one. He's the one God has set aside to do this. We live in an age, and, and, and it's popular, and I think it's actually a, a really good thing because it speaks to who God is and what God desires for us, that we're maybe more spiritual than we are religious, because I think if we deep down think, if we all kind of look inside of ourselves, we know that there's, there's got to be something more. 
that there's something beyond us, that there's something outside of us that we're drawn to. And, and Mark is also saying that part of you, the spiritual part of you, the part that sees the, the sublime pieces of creation, the, the parts of you that are humbled by a new birth or, or a miracle or the beauty of a sunrise, Jesus touches that too. He's a Messiah, he's promised. He, he quotes Isaiah and Micah and says, this person is now being sent. And so they had this expectation that he would come and he comes in the most unexpected way. In Matthew and Luke as a baby in a barn. And then as this itinerant prophet with 12 friends in the desert. That person is embodied in Jesus. And the third, and I think the most important one, probably also the most difficult one, is he's the son of God. And again, this wasn't something unique to the Christian faith to call someone a son of God. It was actually really common in the Greco-Roman world for political leaders to be called sons of God. Caesar was called a son of God. And so it actually was scandalous to open up any of the gospels and see that title being given to this man. Who then, if we know the rest of the story, this son of God was, was then humiliated and, and, and put on a tree in this cursed way. He's the son of God. And in the face of, of somebody like Caesar who had so much more power, so much more influence, Mark and the other gospel writers are saying, actually, this person is the son of God. This was the one marked by God. And then we hear these words at Jesus's baptism. My son, my beloved, with you, I'm well pleased. Everybody gathered at Jesus' baptism that day, heard the good news, heard about the Messiah, heard this, this, this thing interjecting into history in this person, that it's not Caesar or somebody else, it's not Pilate, it's not Herod, that's a son of God, it's this man. And so we get a, a, a taste of this story from the beginning. I think the other piece of Jesus' life in a story that's so compelling and we want to lay this foundation of saying why Jesus is that he touches every time of our life. That if we, if we follow Jesus, if we go after Jesus, if we read these stories and, and see ourselves in them, Jesus redeems our past. Jesus says everything that's come before matters and it's part of your story, but it's just the beginning. And I redeem it, I clean it, I change it, I make it new, I reconcile it. And then likewise in our present, Jesus is there. He's around us. We as Christian people, people that follow Jesus, don't just say that he's a character written in a book from 2,000 years ago, but that we can actually experience his grace and his presence as we just did in baptism, as we will in a moment when we come to the table. And third, also Jesus holds our future. One of the radical things that Christians believe is that he rose from the dead. But not just that but that the future was secured, that our place with, his, with him is secured, that our brotherhood and sisterhood with him is secured on the horizon. We, we can't lose it. It's not gonna go away. He's not gonna let down his end of the bargain, that he's actually gone before us. He's going before us even now. Any place, any situation, any time we'll ever find ourselves, Jesus was there first. And actually, he's, he's planned a future, not a specific future like one day you're going to win the lottery or one day you're going to find this person, but a, a general future for the whole cosmos where everything will be made one and all will be at peace and everything will be as it should be. And even when it's hard to believe that, we hang on to not just any old person, but Jesus. There's a lot of information, just a lot of different things. And I think if I asked all of you, like, what's the most compelling thing about Jesus? You all might say something different. But this is the, the kernel of, of what I think we want to do when we talk about why Jesus. Why would I pick Jesus over another religious teacher? Why would I pick Jesus over somebody else that could give me advice? Why could I pick Jesus if, if, if the church has done such a horrible job of representing him? Why Jesus? 
And for me, I, I, I think that the bottom line for it, the, the main reason we say why Jesus is because he's not just some other person on the other side of a wall. And he's not just some character in a book. And he's not just somebody that we can hear about and maybe occasionally when we're down in the dumps, get comfort from him. And he's not just somebody else somebody told me about and it's not just the, the object of the religion of my parents, but Jesus is the, the life-giving spirit of this community we find ourselves in now. And also, all the things that we could name without religion that we need in the world, I would say Jesus can provide. That we so desperately long for peace. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus also says that, uh, that God is the one who brings justice, and we so long for justice. And we hear this promised future that, that God brings reconciliation. And we so desperately need reconciliation in our relationships and Jesus can bring that. And we, we, so, we so much want love in our life and love is a, such a fulfilling facet of our life. And, and Jesus, we hear about later in the New Testament, is embodied love. He's love in the flesh. That everything we could ever need, base need, not what we want, not what we really hope for, not what we really desire for ourselves, but everything we really, really need is found in this person. And that's not to say, and I want to totally avoid saying, because there are people that do say this, that if you follow Jesus, you will get everything your hearts desire. But if you follow Jesus, he changes the desires of your heart. And he makes you want to follow him. And he makes you want to be more like him. And he draws you to himself and he encourages you and he, and he woos you and he puts you in community to be with other people that say, there must be something about him. Because there's no reason this small sect of Judaism should have survived, but for some reason it did. There's this uh, really beautiful hymn in the New Testament in Philippians. There's this guy named Paul who had an encounter with Jesus and then he went from hating Christians and, and wanting them destroyed to being the primary writer of most of the New Testament in the Bible. And he writes down what was likely sung by the early Christians, this hymn, and I'm paraphrasing it. In it, he says, though he was in the very form of God, speaking of Jesus, though he was divine, he took on the form of a servant. He poured himself out. He made himself nothing. That's what Jesus followers for centuries have longed to be. They haven't sought power or influence for themselves. They've given, given themselves for others. And, and, and in a world that th thinks and says that if you do that, you're gone, you're nothing. If you give of yourself, if you pour out yourself totally on the behalf of others, there's no reason you should exist. But Jesus says, and Paul says, and the rest of the New Testament writers say, that's actually the way that you become great. That's actually the way that you survive. That's actually the way that you last. That's, those are the things that are eternal. And that's compelling to me. That's why Jesus for me, that over and against what we're told and taught, that you should be powerful, and that you should gain all for yourself, and that you should build yourself up, and you should build this castle around yourself. Jesus, the most powerful being in the universe, Christians want to say, did it the exact opposite way. Gave himself up for us. Was cursed and broken on the behalf of others. Made himself nothing. He redeems your past. He's with you in your present. He holds your future. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And he brings real, true, lasting, good news. I'd encourage you, just for a point of practicality, that if you've never read one of the gospels before, never read one of these stories of Jesus, there's dozens of reading plans out there, take your time, 
read a little bit, a little bit, and get to know this person who not in a creepy, weird Netflix dating show way, but in a deep, compassionate, divine way, loves you and wants to be with you and desires you to follow him so you can be more like him and see the world change because of it. I'm grateful for the life of Jesus, of course, but I want more of it. And I want more of it for us. Let's pray.